now more than ever, people need to go within and plug into that cellular memory, plug into divine source, detach as much as possible from the matrix. Hello again, everybody. This is James Bartley, and you're watching and listening to the Cosmic Switchboard Show. Today, my very special guest is Stephen Strong, and his son, Evan Strong, may join us a little later. Stephen is the uh, brainchild, if you will, of the Forgotten Origin uh, website. He and his son have made an effort to bring about the native aboriginal lore as it relates to our alien ancestry, as it relates to the real history of Australia's place in the anthropological scheme of things. And those of you who follow the Strong's work know that, uh, you know, they made a very convincing case that the out-of-Africa theory of, of humanity's origins is not all it's cracked up to be. So, so without any further ado, Stephen Strong, welcome back to the Cosmic Switchboard Show. It's a pleasure to be here again, James, and a pleasure to be talking to you, mate. It is. I'm excited about our upcoming conference, uh, mm. scant three weeks from now, uh, myself, uh, you and your son, Brendan Murphy, and Leah Capitelli. Uh, do you want to tell our audience about the, the thematic nature of, of the, the conference <laughs> and what you had in mind behind it? Yeah, well, look, <clears throat> there is a thematics behind this because normally what happens is you get these sort of events, and I'm not having a go on anyone because they grab who they can and you get different stories that come out from piece to piece. We were lucky. We were the people who actually, the, the people where this is held, gave us the venue for nothing. So all of a sudden we had some pressures that other people don't have. And then secondly, whatever decided to do, not me, because I don't, can't even, don't even know what a website is, to be honest, Evan's going to organize the whole thing for nothing. So the point of this is what we're going to try and do is we're going to select people to come that fit in to a theme and can fit into it in a sequential way. So that makes it a bit different. And, of course, the, the way we're doing this is we went around the country and found what we considered, and that included yourself, James, to be the very best in that particular field that fitted into what we needed. Now, the reason we wanted to do this is we want this to be a success and maybe it'll continue, but if it doesn't get work the first time, it won't. So we had to get the very best we could. And then we made sure, first of all, before we looked, that what we needed from them fitted into that story. And that's what this has turned out to be. So to give people a bit of an idea what we mean by that, we're driven by a philosophy and we're driven by a prediction. And that prediction has been given to us by countless elders over the last couple of years. And it's about the beginning of a change and the involvement of the Pleiadians who've been sung and called and have responded to that song and are returning now. And primarily, the whole of this presentation is based around that. So what we tend to do in the start is explain by showing you guys the skulls and different archaeology and the rings we've got 
something of the Pleiadian legacy and what was here in the past. And then once we've done that, and we've talked about a lot of genetics, but then we're going to throw out a lot of magic as a bit of both, then we have a break and we're going to have a couple. And by the way, for each day, we provide morning and afternoon tea and a full lunch, vegan, vegetarian. I'm not sure if they do meat, but it's very healthy. So don't worry if you do eat meat. It's excellent anyway. And that's all put in the price. And what happens after us is you come on. Your job, James, is to make sure we've we've introduced you to what we absolutely believe is a Pleiadian and we talked about their legacy and now I want you to pick it up from the other level, your research, to explain why when Leah comes on, there's absolutely no doubt that the Pleiadians are part of our history, part of our genetics and part of our future and part of our past and it goes both ways. Your job is to make sure, because all of us, James, that includes yourself, have been to school where our questioning mind and our inquiring mind has been beaten to within an inch of its life. (laughs) And you've been told to memorise, regurgitate and never question anything. So we have a rational conditioning inside and no matter how much you try and stop it, it's still there. So James's job, we start the process, we do the softening up. James, your job is to clear this up completely. So when Leah comes on, it's no longer a doubt. It's a fact, as we both know it is. And Leah's job is to actually, a little bit like meet the Fockers, where we get to meet the aliens up close and friendly and meet them on a personal level, which is where she's coming from. She's an empath, a star child, and she's been in contact with them. And then what that tends to do is by the time we've done that, we've met them from every possible level. Then we talk about the second part because we will be talking about this. When the Pleiadians come, there's a choice that takes place. And very simply, my understanding, we'll talk more about this on the day, if there are the right number of people with the right vibration, the right thoughts, the right understanding are here, they can take that energy and start a healing of the whole of the planet. And I'll talk about that in some more detail. I won't do it all now, James, otherwise they won't come on a day because I know the full story. So I've got to keep a bit back. But my understanding is that that is a seminal point where the earth either we heal the earth. If it turns out there aren't enough people here, then the ship disappears. So, what this day is about that's the underlying process of this and what we're trying to show people through facts through rings through magic and through all different ways we can think of on the first day that this is true now what brendan does (coughs) he talks about the future for those who lift into the higher vibration what that will actually be like and the powers that we actually have and have always had and people talk about telepathy and telekinesis and disappearing. And I've seen all these things happen while I've been with Aboriginal people. I've seen them do all of those things and others. And in each case, they've told them that every human has that potential. Well, in the future, they will. So Brendan Murphy, his job is to basically explain what we're going to be like next. That's why the second part is called What Comes Next. So the first day is a day 
where we want to first of all assuage the rational mind and and the, the cynical mind that we all have and i know because i was there i know when it happened i was watching it year after year 13 years straight all the children are locked up in school and we get you a little more than the adults and when you come out the other side we've got most of you they're ready to be they're ready to be processed you know how this works mate yeah. so what we're looking at is the first day is to break those barriers now on the second day we're doing something completely different that we've never done before as you know james we've got about 180 of sacred rocks and they're in two main categories and i've done ceremony with them at our place and other places on sacred country i've never done ceremony at a presentation before this is the first time i'm going to do that and the ceremony will work like this i'll put them in sacred four day formation because i'm on country i don't have to smoke them to begin with and smoke them at the finish and i don't have to fly them anywhere so i can take about 80 90 kilos and set them up and when people come in on the second day to do the workshop it won't be a workshop it'll be a ceremony and a workshop and what will happen is they'll walk around the rocks three times anti-clockwise then stand inside the two circles for 10 seconds each then during the day we're going to have people touching the rocks. We've got to bring gloves first, of course. We're going to have people using crystals and rods or with the rocks to pick up their energy. We're going to be doing all sorts of things. But during that day, each person will be given an option of a five-minute segment to sit inside the two circles. That's where the power is. Under one condition, and this is very important, James. I want to make this very clear, and it's not negotiable, that when you go through the first time you introduce yourself to the rocks and believe me the rocks are aware and they have a power make no bones about this and i've got to make the point and i'm going to show you something in a sec to just make clear why i'm saying this i'm going to bring i brought along a rock and they get to know you now whether they're going to accept you sitting inside and giving them that energy is not the same thing and it may be that you might go to the first circle and you're denied access. Or maybe you're denied access on both. Now, if you feel uneasy, if you feel like you've got a headache, if your chest is starting to be crushed, if your nose starts to bleed, and I'm not joking about these things, that's what they do very quickly. You ought to get out of that circle and not sit there. It's not a shame, it's not a judgment, it's just the timing isn't right for what that knowledge is for where you're at. I'm not saying for one second that anyone coming is unworthy, but it doesn't mean the knowledge that, that that is giving is right for you at that time. So don't feel like you've got to stand there and get through the five minutes so you don't feel embarrassed. And to that end, James, can I share an example of why that's important, if you don't mind? Please. It's to do with a rock I'm going to hold up and try and hold near the camera. It's this one here. And it doesn't look that amazing, but it is actually. There's a fair bit about that rock. And I want to tell you the story about this rock, and it explains why I'm so cautious about doing this, because this is not my idea. This is what the rocks want to do for the first time ever. They want to give ceremony to people. But this is a story about what the rocks do if they don't feel comfortable with you. And I've seen them do it so many times. I can tell you these rocks have killed people okay i've seen it happen i know the people who died because they've touched these rocks it goes like that but 
In this occasion, this is what happened. We were about, so that the paradigm shift, the lady contacted us before and said she was going to bring us a rock. It's this one here. And she said she was calling grief, causing a lot of grief. Now she found this rock at a place called Chinchilla in Queensland, which as you know, James, is a place where fracking is quite a popular activity and pastime. And found it underneath high voltage power lines. That would have meant that this rock was being bombarded with leakage from the power lines in country that was being sucked dry of its energy. This rock was dying, honestly. Anyway, she picked it up and took it home. Now, unfortunately, James, this is a men's rock. I know how to hold it. I can see how it's got to be held. It has to be held like I've got it now. It's a men's rock. And a lady saved it. So what did the rock do? What these rocks do, they're addicted to protocol. It attacked her because really sacred women's rocks are not to be held by women and vice versa. And what happened, and she told me, they have four earth-moving pieces of equipment that work on the mines or on the gas fields. Not anymore. They're all broken. None of them go. All the machinery inside of a house doesn't go. And she's bleeding through the nose. Now, I've done this with the rocks before, and I know that symbol. When I hear that story about bleeding through the nose, I know the rock is attacking. And the nosebleed is quite strong. So, at Paradigm Shift, she came up to me, and she showed me this rock. And I had a look at it, and I could see there was infills there. Things have been stuck on top. And there's a small writing of a very small script I can see there. And it's, it's obviously a star rock because it's been covered and there's a coat underneath and that's part of that deal. And I said, well, look, you've got two choices. This is not good. I said, one, find an elder there that's not going to put it in a museum but give it um, ceremony and look after it. Or two, give it to us and we'll put it with all the rocks that are going back on country forever on sacred ground and being guarded all the time, 24 hours a day and given ceremony, do it that way. I said, go away and think about it, come back tomorrow. She came back in half an hour and told me this. She said, please take the rock, I can't drive it home. We just know if we drove home, we'd have an accident and we'd die, the rock would kill us. Now, the reason I'm explaining that is that is a story I've heard and seen so many times. So I'm making this very clear. It sounds a bit like I'm scaring the crap out of people before they go near this thing. What I'm saying is, if to begin with, if it's not right, you try the first circle, you try the second circle. If it doesn't work for either, then sit down, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. It's not a drama. But please don't sit there. If you stay there for five minutes, the full five minutes, that's no good. And look, we don't have metaphysical insurance. I'm sorry. A QBU do not cover people from damage caused by sacred rocks when in ceremony. It's not on their policy list. So this is done conditional. And what I'm trying to do, the rocks want to start to make a stronger contact with the people we do presentations. So I'm going to go with that, with that proviso. Now, the reason we're doing that is on the second day, James, I want that contact with the culture to be stronger. And the rocks are prepared to do that. Not everyone, or maybe everyone, will get really strong messages. I don't know. I'm not making any promises. I do know people have done ceremony with this, and they've all been profoundly moved. 
And I know these are some of the most powerful rocks in this country. And it was them that thought of this. So we're going to do that. We're going to do that first up on the second day because I know for a fact you and I have been to a few of these conferences, haven't we? Yeah. And you and I both know that glazed look that people get halfway through the second day when it becomes an overload. You've seen it, haven't you? And they're looking there. They want to keep going, mate, but when they get there, their eyes open and close and their mouth opens a bit and they're trying to stay awake. And it, towards the end, I remember last time at Paradigm Shift, they did a, um, a Q&A at the finish, to which about 30 people managed to crawl in there and half of them were laying on the floor. <laughs> so we know how that works. So what we've tried to do is we kept the price so low because we've got no overheads and all the money, believe me, has been split evenly amongst all the speakers that are there, no one else. So please, from two points of view, think about this. But on the second day, okay, we keep it down to $30 for each workshop, and they both go over two and a bit hours. But the second workshop is Brendan doing forms of meditation and contacting your mitochondrial DNA. Now, for me, what I would never want to follow that workshop is anything where you've got to list the facts and figures because we've just done your soul and your spirit with the rocks, and they've been trying to bomb with you. And I'll have the rings there too and the whole business, and we'll try and be as much as it can be. We're going to set people up so they'll be in a circle around that figure eight, and it's meant to be a spiritual occasion and also an informative occasion, 50-50. What we don't want after is anything else other than either go down to the beach at Byron and meditate and take it all in, or come and do some meditation first, then go down to the beach at Byron and meditate and take it in. So we set the second day up, to be less, how can I put this, as little as possible on the left hemisphere and as much as possible on the right hemisphere. On the first day, we're a bit more over on the left-hand side, but there will be some right as well. But on the second day, we want to get the balance right. And that way, all the great speakers, and I can tell you, and I'm telling people not so much because I'm talking to James, but James was our first choice, not only because of his knowledge, but just as importantly, his ability to get the information across in a way that where you don't fall asleep after five minutes. That's very important. I'm a teacher, and I've worked out that that's the most important part of teaching. So we chose people that were very good speakers as well. And the idea is that we're trying to tell a story about the future that's coming. And I want to sort of finish our little rave about this with a comment about what... Um, Brendan, Brendan, one of the first elder, and one of the ones we have got the most respect for, told me about when this ship is supposed to come. And I'll talk more about that on the day, by the way. And it quite shocked me because up until now, and my wife said, I just put it up in an article where I actually said this. He's adamant. He said, the blue lights have already come down. They're here. But the main ship, the one that can actually change the whole vibration of this planet, will be here next year. And that means the sort of presentation we're doing this time around, I'm hoping if it works well, then we'll go down to Sydney and do it a few other places because we're actually telling people about what's coming. So for me, knowing that it's happening next year means we've really got to start to push this a bit. And this is our way of beginning that process. So that 
it wasn't the short version either. I do apologise. That is the semi-short but quite long in sections version of what the purpose of this particular presentation is. It's partly a talk, it's partly spiritual, and it's partly metaphysical. It's just a mixture of things around a story that I absolutely believe has taken place. I know the Seven Sisters of Australia met for the first time last year, and that's when the song was given, and they are coming. They've been here on two other occasions, once to seed the planet, and then the second time to share their seeds in a very personal and up-close way with the original people. And then the third time was to come back to help clean up an ungodly mess that won't get any better unless they come and step in. I honestly believe that unless we get extraterrestrial help, mate, we can't change this. They have everything under control, all means of communication, all means of everything they run at the moment, and they won't let go. But my understanding from my elders is nothing can stop this ship coming. And I, I'd like to share with you one place that's worth thinking about. The place that the ship will hover is Uluru. And what's fascinating is as you know, a couple of days ago, Uluru was banned. No one's allowed to walk on it. And you probably know this too, that the people went up on the last day, defecated on it, they pissed on it, they threw rubbish everywhere as a statement. They made this statement. And there's this beautiful picture the next day, because as you know, the water just came on top of it and cleaned it completely. And there's one picture of a cloud that covers the whole of it, just the rock itself, and that's all. And it's like it's the final cleansing. And we believe that rock was cleansed then because next year it will be the focal point of what the Pleiadians are going to try and do. But only if we give them the, um, the energy, the fuel to make this machine work because it can only amplify what we give them. And if there aren't enough of us, then the ship flies off and we're on our own. And that would mean at our current rate, within about 25 to 30 years, there'll be no insects left on the planet. And it doesn't matter what you do with anything else, we die soon after. It's that simple. So our chance to clean this planet comes next year. And this is what this presentation is primarily about all the way. We want people to leave absolutely convinced it's true. But we can't give them... A picture, and I'm going to make a point about this. The elders have made this very clear that people have to commit themselves to where they believe they should be before this ship comes. You can't decide after you see it, oh, the hippies were right, I want to join up. It's too late. You've got to join up before. It has to be done through faith. It can't just be done because there's Jesus on a cross or there's a UFO in front of you. That's too easy. Everyone's got to make a decision before that day. And according to the elders I know, and the one in particular that started this story that everyone's backed up over the last two years, begins next year. So we've got some work to do to wake people up because there's a lot of people at the moment that are on the fence, mate. And they've got to work out the fact they've got to make commitments and get understandings and lock themselves into a certain way of thinking.
And at the moment, just being angry and annoyed with what they've got isn't enough. There's got to be more. So back to you, mate, because that's a, that's a nutshell of what we're doing there. Well, thank you for sharing that, Stephen. You talked about the Palladians and their intrinsic connection to the Aboriginal people here in Australia. I know personally when I went to the Carry On Glyphs on one occasion with a very gifted medium friend of mine, there was a Palladian that was there that she can see with a third eye vision who was trying to guide us to the to the healing table. It was getting on dusk. It was getting dark. We were, we were walking around in circles and there was a seven foot tall Palladian being she could clearly see that was trying to get us to the right place. Yeah. Would you like to tell our, our audience about the intrinsic connection between the Aboriginal people and the Palladians. You've got to remember something. The first three articles, the first three books we wrote, we got published by University Press of America. We never used or mentioned UFOs, Pleiadians, or anything like that. We deliberately kept away from it. It was not something we really wanted to touch. And I remember when I was given my first ceremony, Peter Evans said to me after I was given that ceremony, he said, well, you're going to have to talk about all the different ways we travelled across the earth. And I said, no, I won't be. I'm not touching the UFO stuff. I'm going to leave it alone. But the reason why we did this is not because we wanted to. In fact, we didn't want to because it's a distraction and it causes a lot of issues. It's because we had no choice. Because everywhere we went, that was the one story that dominated and was focal. And it didn't matter whether we went to Gangamaya in West Australia, whether we went to Ramanjeri country, whether we went down to Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland. It doesn't matter where in this country. If you talk about the seven sisters from the Pleiades, they all have that story. It is the only story that original people share. All their other dreaming stories are region-specific or spirit-specific to their spirits of that land. That becomes an issue. Many of the elders I spoke to would, would bring it up and say time after time that they are our ancestors, they are our brothers, they are our sisters. They said that all the time. So it's something where in Australia, if you are an original person, the seven sisters of the Pleiades is just part of being original. There's nothing else for it. When you speak about when you went up near Carrion there, that place there, just around Carrion where the glyphs are, that has more star markers and astronomical markers than anywhere else on the planet engraved into rocks. We've been to one site there where there are 800 star markers of which we've marked about and plotted about 396. We found Orion and Pleiades, of course, that sort of stuff. But why are these people obsessed with making maps of the sky? We've got one site there directly above the glyphs. It's the closest star marker there, which has been dated as a perfect copy of the sky 4,600 and about 18, 20 years ago, which by the time, by the way, happens to be the time of the rule of Khufu, which is also the time of where Nefertu and Nefertijeb were alive. And actually there's a story about them just below that star marker in the carry-on glyphs where the, the cartouche for Nefertijeb can be found, which means that that star marker there is validating, which was done by original people, 
the glyphs down below. So yeah, this is a place where the Pleiades is a focal part of the mythology of all original people and everyone accepts them. So, and the other part, which is very important, James, is there is no discussion, no acknowledgement of any other group, bar Pleiadians. My understanding is there was an agreement made at the very beginning because we believe they were the first to come, that Australia or Lemuria, I'm not sure which because they could have all been covered, but certainly Australia and probably the rest of that region was off limits. The rest of the world, Africa, Asia, the rest of the place there, help yourself. And there's all sorts of mixtures taking place, but not here. This is purely Pleiadian. So it's not a, a, an interest in so much what the Syrians or Andromedans or anyone else is doing. It's just solely of truth that everywhere I go, I see stories of beings coming across the Milky Way. Bulgandry is the story of Thoth with the sun and the moon in his hands coming across the Milky Way and landing here in this region. So it's so much a part of original mythology. And now, of course, we've got that skull, which you know about, James. It's also a part of our archaeology. But we have no choice now. We talk about Pleiadians all the time because that's all we ever seem to get at the moment. So we don't have a choice. I actually wouldn't mind something that wasn't actually Pleiadian or Egyptian just to break the, the role, but that doesn't seem to happen. You also made a point earlier about how the minerals, the rocks that are sacred, have a consciousness all their own. Yes. We can see a, a parallel to that in a way with uh, the lava rocks in Hawaii where many an unwitting traveler or tourist brought back with them to the mainland of, of America or elsewhere a lava rock and just had nothing but misfortune and bad luck to the point where the the post the main post offices in Hawaii were inundated mm. by people from all over the world sending the rocks back. back. Yeah. Yes. And that only backs up what we just said, and particularly the sacred rocks, which are more a concentrated form of energy. I have killing rocks there that can kill anyone. We do have rocks that have got all different types. And you're right, the same thing happened to Uluru when people took rocks from there, they send it back. Look, to give you an even better example, my wife was painting Ros's rock once and once for her, for Ros. And she made the mistake as a painter by actually doing something no one but in Australia bar me, not even my son can do, which is touch the rocks unless they tell me someone's allowed to touch them. And then they've done that occasionally. But on this occasion, my wife was just touching this rock to move it for a better angle. And as soon as she did, I was three rooms away. I knew something was wrong and she called out. I raced in there and I knew what she'd done and she told me I've touched the rock. She had this huge, massive pain in her hand and was running up her hand. Fortunately, I had rocks to fix that up and I smoked her and got, that, got rid of it. My point being that the rocks that I look after were prepared to either harm or kill my wife because she broke protocol. So when these people send back the lava rocks in Hawaii or when they send them back at Uluru, that's for sacred rocks in sacred places. They're all like that. 
the ones we have are possibly multiplied by a hundred times more. And that gives you an idea of the power. And well, I don't know what other word to use, but actually magic these rocks actually have. There's no other way to put it. So <clears throat> that what you're talking about is true in places all over the world. And of course, those places we believe next year will become energized again. And the vibrations, you obviously aware of the Schumann residence, which runs around eight and nine, but has gone up to 140 on occasions. Our understanding is when the change completes, it stays there. And that would be, <clears throat> that'd be a change in setting for everyone. And not everyone will be comfortable in that setting, yeah. I can assure you. Yeah. If it doesn't drop back, it's going to cause, and a lot of people are finding life pretty tough at the moment, I've noticed. It will only get worse over the next year. Can't be much longer than that. You also made a point about how, in Native American terms or in Lakota terms, they talk about powerful medicine on the reservation in their ceremonies, that in the original Australian people's scheme of things, there is a, a, dealing, uh, uh, a demarcation between women's medicine and men's medicine. And it's got nothing to do with, with bias or misogyny, because I've been told by the elders as well that there are places we can take you as a male, but yeah. there are places that only women can go to and no males can go. Mm. Do you want to elaborate on and, and point out the, the importance of that? Look, that's essential. That's really important that people get this right. There's when, women's magic, there's women's business, there's men's magic, there's men's business. My understanding in our culture, in the original culture, women's magic is stronger. And I know dreaming stories that tell me that. But people need to understand that when, like I know the sites where they say that's a men's site, that's a men's site, therefore women can't go there. That's rubbish. If the men went there and did their ceremony, very soon, somewhere close, maybe out of earshot, the women will be doing their ceremony. And if I was a male and I went and saw that ceremony, if I was a female and I went and saw the other ceremony, the punishment would be equal. You don't break their laws and they are equal. They're equal in every respect except the ceremonies about creation because that's really a female and spirit ceremony. The male is not really part of that ceremony. That's one I've seen where that happens. I've seen that ceremony once where, a male that had a child, he waited a week and a half before it was brought out and the grandmother brought it out and he laid on the ground and they laid the child on his chest for the first time. In that ceremony, when it comes to that particular magic, women create, men don't. So therefore, they've got strength. But in all the other ones, they're equal. So people need to understand, with the rocks we've got, I've got men's rocks and I've got women's rocks and I've got one rock in particular where all the elders, all the women, that are really versed in the old way, oh, they can't help themselves. It's like lolly in a candy shop. They've got to grab it. And I know that that's okay. And you can see which ones those are. And you can see the men's rocks. And there's some that you're not so sure about. But the point being, with those rocks, they're not going to turn on someone straight away that shouldn't hold them. Because I understand that a lot of people don't know the difference. But for the ones who do, then we've got to be very careful because 
the women's magic for a male and a men's magic for a female can be hit lethal if it's if it's used incorrectly and if they want to attack you and they can. So the the deal with this is, um, with all our, all the magic, it goes both ways. There's black magic, there's white magic, there's women's magic, there's men's magic. They're all equal. So anyone that's got the idea that somehow or other men's magic is more, more powerful, it's just not. But it's just kept separate. So when the men are doing ceremony, women don't listen. When the women do ceremony, men don't listen. And we keep away when those things are taking place and the rest of the time, everyone's equal. And that's the way it always was until other people came to Australia. But that's another story. There has been, for lack of a better term, cross-pollination, if you will. And it seems, Stephen, uh, in the lore of, of the original people in Australia, as well as the lore of some of the Native American peoples, that there has been some interaction between them to the point, if we are to believe some of the stories, that they utilize the portal networks to Native Americans come here to conduct ceremonies and vice versa. Yeah. Now, that's true, and it's actually archaeologically being proven. I can tell you an example both ways of how true that actually is. The contact between the original people and the Amerindian people has been constant and it's probably been the strongest of, the, of all the tribes, including the Indians. And the reason we know this is true is we know um, there are literally hundreds of original uh, skeletons in America. Uh, Walter Reeves has, I think, 55 skulls himself. Penal woman that uh, Sylvia Gonzalez talks about is 25,000, 20,000 years old, and it's original. We know that's true. <clears throat> and we know from archaeology that the original people were in America for, they're talking about six figures. They're even getting close to seven figures human occupation, particularly in Lake Balsaquilo, going back 600,000 years. So the original people have been in America for a long time. And the group that we refer to today as the Indian people, which the Navajo, the Hopi and stuff like that, have been there for a long time. And my point is that when the second wave came in, it was a harmonious interaction between the Hopi, the Navajo, the Cheyenne and the original people. And there were settlements of them down the bottom in Terra del Fuego, in Lake Titicata. There was no group of original people there. The Perecu people were original when the Spanish were there. And there are groups of them, but I think what happened was that the original people in America got cut off into contact and they spread out. Okay. Indian people, the American Indian people, maintained nearly all of the traditions that were given to them when they got there. And so my understanding is, and of course, like they, of course things mixed over, and as we know, when you go to South America, they did a study there of the indigenous people down on the Amazon River. It took a six-year study with six universities to look at the genetics because these two tribes, the Tupu and the Gi-speaking people, only married with each other. And they figured, we'll find out where the Indian people come from because we'll find the genetics from them. And they, it was... It was about three groups in front, then daylight second. Original people of Australia, Papua New Guinea and the Andaman people, and then daylight second. 
they were the closest genetic match in the world. So we know that's strong from that point of view. Now, from another point of view where we live, Arnie Millie Boyd, she's the last full descent knowledgeable one of old by law. No one questions her word on anything. She speaks of a place around here called White Buffalo Mountain. And she said it doesn't belong to the original people of Australia. It belongs to the people in America. And it's a portal. Under certain conditions, you can make your way all the way back to America or come back here. I also know <clears throat> for a fact that the Hopi would come to this place and do ceremony there. And they were allowed to do Hopi ceremony there because it belongs to them. And it belongs to another group, maybe they never, I'm not sure which, I don't know the full story. But I've known that for quite some time. I've read about it and I've spoken to people who work with Aunty Millie for a long period of time and they all speak about White Buffalo Mountain. And there are stories of a, um, people from, Indian people from America, American Indian people, I think Sue and others who've come here and had all sorts of massive visions when they've got near that site there. So yes, there is an ongoing long connection. Remember Thor Heyerdahl originally sailed from South America to Australia to prove there was movement all the way across. That was the full purpose of why he did that. He is influenced by another, oh, I forgot the, forgot the guy's name, there was another guy in um, South America, in Peru, Chile somewhere, who said that there was a link between Australia and South America, which there is. And he was trying to prove that. So yes, that is a very strong link. And it's still, and it's, it's probably the strongest of all because it was going on for a very long time. It's about 103, 102 days toward the higher doll proved it. You take the currents, it'll take you straight to, and he landed at Ballina, where we live. So it'll take you straight to Australia. So it's easy to do, and they were doing it. Another thing that you alluded to was the, for lack of a better term, the, the mystical nature of, of the original people. Yeah. In, in total, just in general, I've, I've read books like The Mutant Message Down Under, and I've read uh, The Secrets of Aboriginal Healing and other, other books. And within the original people context, tel telepathy and mind speak to one another is, is a given. It's a fact of life. Because one of the stereotypes, unfortunately, Stephen, that would come down to us is that Aboriginal people are so dumb, they don't even talk amongst themselves verbally when they don't have to. They, they don't have to. Telepathic. Oh, can I give you an example of how sophisticated their telepathy is, James? Yes, please. Um, and it's to do with my... One of my three, well, one of my two main elders, I had three, Uncle Marbuck, Aunty Bev, and of course, Kano. And this was something Kano did to myself and Evan. And you want to talk about telepathy. Let me explain how far telepathy went to begin with when we first got here. You've got to believe original people every, believe that every person is born with a degree of magic. It's their job to, in, to improve it. Now, this is what happened. Um, <clears throat> We went on country uh, in Gosford, which is where you've been. You know where that is. And unfortunately, on that day, Arnie Bev was not well. She normally smokes us before we go on country, so we couldn't do that. So I did a, a smearing money given to me by Uncle Jerry. 
and we went on to a cave. We looked at the cave, we filmed it. We saw orbs fly up the side of someone's neck and go around the back and go over their head and go over the other side. Got some great film. Thought it was really good. When we first got there, an owl flew out and left a feather and Evan picked it up. I bet he, I tell you now, he wished he didn't. So it all looked good. Owl feather, you know, it's pretty deadly, isn't it? To fly out in front of you. We did the right ceremony. We got orbs flying all over the place. We're back in Gosford that night. Exactly four hours after, I get a phone call and Evan hands it to me. He says, it's, it's Carno on the phone. Mate, that's chaos. That's bad news. When elders want to speak to you, someone rings you to tell you, you have to ring them, right? That's the way it works. When they ring you straight away on the phone, do you know what that means? You're in deep shit. <laughs> and Evan was smiling saying, what have you done wrong? I've only got the trouble once before he wanted to speak to me. I was in big trouble. He was, oh, my God, what have I done wrong? And Evan's smiling there thinking, what are you in trouble for? So I picked the phone up. Here it is. Cardo, what's up? He said, you know something's wrong, don't you? I said, yeah, what is it? He said, you were on country today, weren't you? I said, yeah, but I didn't need your permission because Kangaroo Island Carter is 3,500 k's away from Gosford. It's the bottom of South Australia. You know where it is, James. It's not close. I don't need his permission. He said, but he said, why didn't you smoke yourself? I said, hang on for a sec. I didn't tell him I was on country and I didn't tell him I didn't smoke myself. And I got a bit sort of wondering, what's going on here? I said, no, no, man, we, we, we couldn't. Only Bev was crooked. She had legs playing up and I did the ceremony. He said, you mean the stacking rock ceremony where each of you stacked another rock on top of the last one? I said, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, what is going on here? And he said, but, he said, you didn't smoke yourself. He said, now... Evan picked that feather up, didn't he? He thought, oh, I'm not questioning myself anymore. He just said, yeah, he picked the feather up. He said, right, you're both punished. I said, but, he said, you are supposed to go on. You were given smoking ceremony. It doesn't change. You didn't do smoking ceremony. You did the rock ceremony. He said, that's why I can talk to you. If you hadn't have done that, you'd all be dead. And he said, if you ever go on the site again and you don't do a smoking ceremony, you will die. I thought, all right, okay, fine, I've got that. I knew it was bad news. I didn't know it was quite this bad. I said, but Kano, one last thing before I go. I had to ask this one, mate. I said, how did you know all this? That's a fair question, isn't it? Um, he said to me, simple. He said, right now, in front of me, on the veranda next to me, is a red kangaroo. And that kangaroo told me everything telepathically, what had taken place. When that brown owl flew out, it told someone else. It's gone all the way through and it's telling me. So when you talk about telepathy, we can actually tele telepathically communicate with all beings on this planet, not just other humans. And that is a natural talent. And I can tell you now, Nobody rang up Kano before to tell him that we'd done what we'd done. He knew everything we did there, but he was never there. But the owl was, and the owl told another animal, which wasn't an owl because it crossed species to a marsupial, didn't it? Yeah. And the marsupial sit, and that's a red kangaroo. I think you know what they are, mate. They're pretty big, aren't they? Yes. When one gets on your veranda, you normally get off the veranda or inside the house because they're about six foot, and it's sitting there telling a story about what's happened. That is part of what we told you at the start. That's part of our story, isn't it, James? That's what we're talking about. That's what we're capable of doing. And that gives you an idea 
the sort of skills that humans did have before and could have again. And to be honest, you give me that or a flat screen TV and I'm going to take talking to a kangaroo any day. Yeah. I think there's a lot more to be said for that than any flat screen TV. And, and that's the, the limitations that a lot of these anthropologists place on, place on themselves, Stephen. For example, when you, when you study Native American lore and Native American traditions from a Western anthropological standpoint, to them, everything is a metaphor. Like, they say, oh, you know, the Native Americans, they refer to Brother Raven, and they refer to Brother Raccoon. They think it's some kind of, like, metaphor, like a cheap kind of nickname they give to another animal. They don't understand the connectivity that you were just describing. The they don't get any of that, mate. They don't get the fact that the shaman, who they call a witch doctor, yeah, was actually yeah. a person that had skills and that's why they kept him year after year, generation after generation, because they damn well worked. Yeah. And they made fun of those things. They made fun of the magic. They made fun of the fact that we believe that the totems actually give us messages and they are our brothers. And, of course, in original society, if your totem is such and such an animal, you can't eat it, you can't harm it, you can't touch it, it's your brother. And they never got that because it is our brother and they missed all of that. And when our archaeologists go on the country, James, they take their clipboard, they've got their funding, they already know the answer when they get there, don't they? They already know that they know what they're looking for and they're not ready to ask. And what they don't understand is if they walk on to a hoppy uh, keeper of old law or a Ram and Jerry keeper of old law, they're talking two different languages. One mob's talking about our spirits, our magic, and the real way we used to live, and the other guy's talking from a completely different place, and they can't communicate with each other. Because when you go onto most sites, you must understand, first question you ask is, what ley line is this site on? Because it will be on one, and then you will need to understand why is it on this particular site? Why was that chosen? Then you need to understand what are the sacred sites that surround this site, and what is their meaning? And then you start to understand where they're thinking. But if you start looking at the fact, oh, look at how this axe is made and look at how this is weaved together, oh, you just sort of... The, the obsession that uh, American archaeologists studying Native Americans, how they obsess on pottery and they obsess on arrowheads, and it, it, it just makes you scratch your head. <laughs> They don't get the main part of the story was that the the people we're talking about, the indigenous people we're talking about, were living with the land, with the spirits, with the purpose of why we're here and becoming the greatest magicians in the cosmos. That's what we're here for. We're here to create magic and create love, nothing else. The rest of the stuff, for God's sake, people, you've got to understand something. Neanderthal, Denisovan, Homo heidelbergensis, I've all got bigger brains than us. Yeah. The skull we have has 1,750cc brain with a flask that goes out the back that makes our brain look like it's basically Lucy. We were the dumbest of all the sapiens on this planet, but we were the most spiritual, but we've lost it. When I see Kano do the stuff he does, and I think you know the story about when he disappeared in front of Graham Hancock, when I see those things, no, and Kano kind of gets I'm not familiar with that st uh, story. In the time you got left on the first segment, uh, Stephen, do you mind? Do you mind sharing that? 
Oh, I didn't know you didn't know that one. I must, oh, sorry. Oh, well, Graham spent six days with us when he came down here on the condition I told him we take him onto every site we've got, or some anyway, only if he spent the last day with Carno on country, on site, on sacred site, which he did, and Santa, they both did. So what happened was it was about 7 o'clock. We're around this huge, massive campfire. Graham's over there. There's about 10 people there. My Evan was there. Santa was there. And then Kano appears from nowhere, all done up old way. Just got a lap lap on, singing, the whispering song, doing the stuff he does, talking in language, not talking in language. Did a ceremony for half an hour. Then he walked backwards one step. We all watched him. Then he walked backwards the next step. Next step. We all watched him, but he weren't there. He went. He disappeared completely. Big fire going everywhere. <coughs> no way. We all watched it. No one had anything to say, of course, and it stayed that way for, oh, I don't know, a while. Then finally he just reappears behind his wife about 40 metres away, sits standing behind him with this huge smile on his face. I remember I looked back to look at Graham at the time. His mouth was so open, mate. Fifteen flies could have flown in and none of them would have touched each other. He didn't know what to say. To be honest, I didn't know what to say either because I'd never seen this before. I've seen Kano do a few things but not disappear like this. The next day, because I wasn't going to ask Kano why, how he did that because he would have asked me another question because whenever I ask him one, he'd always ask another question I couldn't answer. So I wasn't going to embarrass myself, but someone else did. They actually gave him a proper answer. He said, what, that party trick? And of course the guy said, yeah, that party trick, how did you do it? He said, there's a curtain just there. I said, I went round the other side for a while and then came back and peeked back and came back over there. Can't you see it? It's in front of all of us. The only difference is I can see it and you can't. Uh-huh. It's nothing I you couldn't do that I can't do. I just know where the curtain is. That's all. I just hid behind it and then came back. And I remember one of the other elders, when I spoke about that, he said, oh, that party trick. He's done that about four times. Now, here's the point. That's what we're supposed to be like. That's what our future will be. And it will be considered just, oh, that's cute. Isn't that quite clever? Because you can't get food with it, right? It, it doesn't actually teach you any wisdom, but it does give you a bit of an understanding of what the truth is. Yes. And there isn't any out there right now. But the truth is, ladies or gentlemen, I know it sounds odd, but I've worked out what the truth is, and it's magic. Once you understand there's magic, then you understand the truth. Yes. Well, we sort of learned that with the rings we've got recently, James. It's sort of we don't have a choice, but, you know, that's part of it too. Well, we've reached the end of a fascinating first segment with our guest, Stephen Strong. You've been watching and listening to the Cosmic Switchboard Show, and we're just getting started. Uh, Stephen, uh, thank you for, for sharing that lore with us. Stephen's website is ForgottenOrigin.com, and we've got a lot more to share, uh, to receive from Stephen Strong in the next segment. And to our listeners out there, if you like what we do, if you believe in what we do, please go to thecosmicswitchboard.com, sign up and become a member, and we'll see you at the top of the next segment.